Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. On the first day of May in 1879, spring arrived late in the Ontario city of London. In an outhouse near a new medical office at 204 Dundas Street, there sat a young woman in her mid-twenties, unmoving, and slouched against the wall. After noticing the woman's condition, a young bystander went to fetch her brother, assuming that the woman might be asleep or intoxicated. The young girl and her brother then sought the assistance of a passing police officer. Constable William Ryder approached the woman and discovered that she was lifeless. Next to her lay a small silk handkerchief, and an upright, open medicine bottle containing clear liquid. Constable Ryder promptly summoned Dr. James Niven, who, upon examination, estimated that the woman had passed away at daybreak. He detected a familiar odor, a sweet, fruity scent. Chloroform. The woman's nose and cheeks displayed blotches and burns, likely the result of contact with the chemical. Another physician arrived at the scene before the body was removed and recognized the woman as a maid from the nearby Tecumseh House Hotel. He also knew her name, Kitty Gardner, and he treated her on several occasions. A reporter at the scene made note of the name of this medical practitioner, Dr. Cream. Tonight, we present our Halloween episode, and this is True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special Halloween edition of True North True Crime. If you're new, welcome and make sure to hit subscribe or follow on whichever platform you are listening on. If you'd like more True North True Crime, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Patreon or Apple Podcasts. There you'll find ad-free, early release, and bonus episodes for just $5 a month. If you have a case suggestion for us, you can send it on over to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. Please know that we do prioritize cases that come to us directly from family members or close contacts of a case, but we are more than happy to receive suggestions from everyone. 
If you'd like to say hi and stay updated on news on cases we have previously covered, you can go follow us on Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it at TNTC Pod, or you can search us on Facebook at True North True Crime. This is our Halloween episode. Every year in October, we like to reach way back into the past to bring you a story from Canada's eerie and haunted history. This story is pretty robust, so we have broken it into two parts. Be sure to check out both parts. This episode will cover a series of murders committed by a physician by the name of Dr. Cream. His murders, crimes, and malpractice took place in three different countries over a decade, and some even speculate that he could have been Jack the Ripper. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles and also the excellent book, The Case of the Murderous Dr. Cream, colon, The Hunt for a Victorian-era serial killer written by Dean Job, which we highly recommend that you check out, especially this uh, haunted season. The content warnings for this episode include abortion, child loss, hatred and violence towards women, drug and alcohol abuse, murder, and animal testing. All right, grab yourself a warm pumpkin-spiced beverage, a cozy blanket, and a furry friend, and let's get right into tonight's October Halloween episode. In this episode, we are headed back in time to the 19th century or the late 1800s. We're going to be talking about the life and the crimes of a notorious Canadian man by the name of Thomas Neal Cream. Now, during my research into this story, I was shocked that there wasn't more podcast or even YouTube coverage on the case. It's a fascinating look into the lives of those who came before us, And I think what I was most struck by was how vastly our lives have changed for the better in just over a hundred years, and at times, how much of it has unfortunately stayed the same. So who is Thomas Neal Cream? Well, his father William Cream was born in England around 1820 and grew up in Belfast. William met a woman named Mary Elder who was from the Glasgow region of Scotland, and the two would get married in June of 1849 and less than a year later, on May 27, 1850, in Glasgow, their first son, Thomas, was born. The family immigrated from the UK to Quebec City in 1854, where William Cream would get a job at Alan Gilmore's Shipping and Timber Sorting Yard in Wolf's Cove. The Cream family lived in a house supplied by the company, and William quickly rose up the ranks and became the site manager. William Cream would go on to become one of Quebec City's wealthiest businessmen. The family worshipped at Chalmers Wesley United Church in Quebec City, which still stands today. As a teenager, Thomas Neal Cream taught Sunday school at the church, and considering the Presbyterian focus on education, he likely held a position of trust and responsibility within the congregation. He also seemed to be upholding his father's Christian values and rigorous moral standards. A man by the name of Thomas Davidson, who was part of the congregation at Chalmers, said that he had every confidence that this young man was incapable of anything disreputable. But Thomas Neal Cream had other aspirations in life. He wanted a career in medicine, 
And while no one knew exactly why Cream had decided to become a doctor, this occupation was fitting for the eldest son of an affluent and esteemed family. It can be surmised that while caring for his ailing mother during her prolonged illness, Cream may have felt a helplessness coupled with the loss of his infant sisters. This may have sparked a passion to assist and provide healing to others. Cream was accepted into the prestigious McGill University in Montreal in 1872, and so in the fall of that year, Cream left Quebec City to begin his next chapter. In early 1876, now 26-year-old Cream met a 23-year-old woman by the name of Flora Brooks. The two quickly became enamored with each other and the Victorian process of courtship began. For those unfamiliar with the idea of courtship, it includes things like supervised interactions, formal introductions, calling cards, courtship letters, and social gatherings such as dances or balls. To visit a young woman at her residence, a prospective suitor was required to have an invitation and ensure the presence of at least one family member during the visit. When venturing outside the home, it was customary for a chaperone to accompany the couple. Before long, Cream and Flora Brooks were thought of as engaged, and Cream became a regular presence at the Brooks' home. Flora lived in Waterloo while Cream was living and still attending medical school at McGill in Montreal. While he was back in Montreal, the couple would communicate by sending each other letters. Through these letters, they found many shared interests. Aside from the benefits of having financially well-off fathers, both were the eldest siblings in their families and had experienced the loss of a parent. Flora's mother had passed away just two years prior. They also shared the Protestant faith, which was a significant commonality during the 19th century. However, Flora didn't know a whole lot about Thomas Neal Cream, and nothing could ever prepare her for what this man was truly capable of. Cream promised Flora that they would get married, and this was enough to convince her to consummate their relationship before officially getting married. As I'm sure many already know, this was pearl-clutching behavior in the 1800s, as a woman who had been involved in intimacy out of wedlock was considered spoiled or ruined. And should the woman fall pregnant before getting married, the situation only became more difficult. On the night of September 9th, 1876, Flora Brooks became severely ill. In response, her father, Lyman Brooks, reached out to their family doctor, whose diagnosis came as a shock. It was determined that Flora had had an abortion, accomplished using either drugs or instruments. While the doctor couldn't definitively pinpoint the method, it was evident that Cream was both the father and the one who had performed the abortion. Her father knew that taking legal action would merely subject his daughter to public scrutiny and would devastate her reputation. Instead, on September 11, 1876, a negotiation took place between the Brooks family and Dr. Thomas Neal Cream, from which a marriage contract was drawn up. The wedding ceremony was held in the living room, with Flora reclining in a lounge chair due to her ongoing weakness. The day after the couple wed, Cream explained that he needed to go to England for a while to complete his medical studies. Flora and her father would never see Cream again. On August 12, 1877, nearly a year after Flora and Cream had their wedding inside the Brooks family home, Flora died. She mentioned that she had been taking medicine that Cream was sending her from where he was living in England. Flora was buried near St. Luke's Anglican Church in Waterloo, Ontario. Carved on her headstone 
is a single rose and the words, wife of Dr. T.N. Cream. When news that his former fiance had died reached Thomas Neal Cream, instead of writing a letter of sympathy to the family, he instead demanded that Lyman Brooks give him $1,000 from his wife's estate. This was all despite the fact that in the marriage agreement that they had made together, Cream was entitled to nothing of Flora's or from the Brooks family estate. Whether or not Thomas Neal Cream was responsible for the death of Flora Brooks remains a mystery to this day, but many consider Flora to be one of his first victims. Cream arrived in London, England in October of 1876 to attend St. Thomas's Hospital, where he would be student number 2016. Cream specialized in obstetrics, an area brimming with potential for a young doctor, given that the medical world had just started to encroach upon the traditional domain of midwifery. During his two-year tenure at St. Thomas's, he claimed he had either seen or treated approximately 500 expectant women. Additionally, he provided assistance and counsel to others as they conducted abortions in cases where the mother's life was in jeopardy. On the afternoon of April 16, 1877, Cream paid the £5, 5 shilling fee to take the examination to join the Royal College of Surgeons of England. Students who took this exam were either approved or referred, meaning they failed. Cream was referred. Students were allowed to rewrite the exam after a waiting period of a few months, but Cream opted out. He remained in London at St. Thomas's, where he continued his studies and eventually completed his service as a dresser in 1877, and a dresser typically refers to a junior doctor or medical student who assists in various clinical duties, including preparing and dressing wounds, helping with surgical procedures, and generally providing support to the more experienced healthcare professionals. After he finished his time at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, Cream would head north to Edinburgh, Scotland, to once again attempt to obtain his medical license. The examinations began on April 2, 1878, and one out of three candidates in this examination year failed the examination. But Cream was not among them. He was one of the 1,579 students who received a license. Once Cream obtained his license in medicine and surgery in Scotland, he decided to return to North America with the goal of finding a city to open up his own practice. Initially, he found himself in Des Moines, Iowa, but Cream decided he didn't like Des Moines and made his way back to Canada. Finally, he settled in London, Ontario. Upon arrival in London, advertisements began to emerge in the city's newspapers. In September of 1878, the advertisement for his new medical practice was in the top spot in the classified ads. The advertisement boasted his credentials from Edinburgh, that he specialized in midwifery, and detailed his training at St. Thomas Hospital in London, England. Cream was living at 250 Queens Avenue, which was a brisk walk away from his office and at the time was one of the most sought-after residential areas in London, Ontario. He was active in his new community, he was registered to vote, and he attended Park Avenue Presbyterian Church, where he taught Sunday school each week. A local man by the name of James Reed befriended Cream, and according to James, Cream was a pillar of the church's congregation. But there were two sides to Thomas Neal Cream. After dark, the community-minded, faithful, virtuous, young medical man became the opposite of what everyone knew him as. In James's words, he was always to be found with a number of London's most congenial spirits. 
Cream was a regular at the city's hotels, often accompanied by, quote, his more intimate friends. And he indulged in excesses in the flowing bowl, which is Victorian speak for he used the services of sex workers and was often drunk. This was scandalous behavior for someone who masqueraded as a professional man from a notable family in those days. James Reed said the following, Respectable people did not get drunk or behave wildly. He guarded his reputation well and was never found in the daytime when he was not perfectly right. But this facade didn't last long. Just six months after Cream's arrival in London, Ontario, his character was called into question. In February 1879, he was brought before police magistrate Lawrence Lorison and charged under Ontario's Medical Act for practicing without a license. During the court proceedings, Cream argued that it was a misunderstanding, stating that he had submitted the required fee, but the Ontario Medical Council had failed to issue him a license. The case was postponed for a week to allow the council's inspector to consult with his superiors in Toronto. Within a few days, both local newspapers in London reported that the allegation had been withdrawn. The Daily Advertiser assured its readers that Cream had paid his registration fees and obtained his license sometime before he began practicing in the city. But, as it would come to light, this was the least of Dr. Cream's worries. If you recall, in the trailer portion of this episode, a woman had been found dead inside a privy or an outhouse. It turns out her body was found just steps away from Cream's new medical practice in London, Ontario. Her name was Catherine Gardner, but she went by the name Kitty. The allegation that Cream was practicing illegally without a license in the city of London, Ontario, was still before the court when Kitty's body was located. Initially, it was assumed by the media outlets that her death had been a suicide. However, an autopsy would bring new evidence to light. Dr. James Niven was in charge of the autopsy of Catherine Gardner, and he was able to ascertain that she had been two months pregnant at the time of her death. The doctor did not agree that the cause of her death was suicide, citing the burns to her face, indicating that the chloroform had been held against the skin of her face for a significant period of time. The doctor had his doubts that she would have been able to hold the cloth that had been soaked with chloroform long enough to cause the burns before she would have fallen unconscious. He stated, The marks produced would lead me to believe that the poison was forcibly applied and could have been applied by some other person standing in front of the deceased. His conclusion was that Catherine Gardner had been the victim of a homicide. Adding evidence to the doctor's conclusion was the handkerchief that was found next to her body alongside the bottle of chloroform. The piece of cloth was not large enough to be able to hold a sufficient amount of the chemical to be fatal. It would have had to be repeatedly saturated with chloroform, and they also found no trace of chloroform on Catherine's hands. During the investigation into Catherine's murder, a woman named Sarah Long came forward to inform the police that she was also a maid at the Tecumseh House Hotel, where the victim had worked, and the two had roomed together. She shared shocking information that included a blackmail plot with them. Allegedly, Catherine had visited Dr. Cream with the intention of having an abortion, but he was said to have refused to perform the procedure or to give her any medication that would induce a miscarriage. 
Sarah Long asserted that Dr. Cream had encouraged Catherine to seduce and have a sexual relationship with a wealthy local resident of the hotel named William H. Burrell. The plan was for her to subsequently accuse Burrell of being the child's father. Then with Dr. Cream assuring her that he would support her in her claim of paternity. The entire scheme was intended to remain a secret, and Cream commanded her to never breathe his name. When Catherine's death was brought to an inquest, not a trial, an inquest, William Burrell testified that he had never met or spoken with Catherine. Cream, on the other hand, stated that he had met Catherine shortly after arriving in the city and had provided her with a minor medical treatment. He also stated that on April 5th, 1879, an examination confirmed her pregnancy. According to Cream, Catherine offered him $100 to resolve her situation, but he refused. A few days later, Cream claims to have received a letter from Catherine implicating William Burrell in her troubles and suggesting that she could pay Cream if he helped her. Cream claimed that he last saw Catherine Gardner on April 20, 1979 and denied having any chloroform in his office. Cream was also in close proximity to where the body was discovered in the outhouse and he lacked a substantial alibi for the night before her body was discovered. The alleged blackmail plot involving the letter was also suspicious. After scrutinizing the letter, Sarah Long found discrepancies in the signature and the handwriting compared to other letters from Catherine. Robert Gardner, Catherine's brother, was confident the handwriting didn't match and believed it was written by somebody else. In the end, the jury agreed that Catherine had been murdered by a person or persons unknown. They also agreed that William Burrell was not the father and not involved in the grim fate that Catherine had met. Her murder was never solved, even though the evidence pointing towards Thomas Neal Cream was intriguing. With the context of Cream having performed an abortion on his late wife, Flora Brooks, as well as the subject of Cream's thesis at McGill, which was chloroform, listeners will have to decide for themselves as to whether or not they believe he was responsible for Catherine's premature death. Following the conclusion of the court proceedings, Cream continued to face scrutiny and judgment from his community. He had been accused of practicing medicine without a license, and now he found himself entangled in a murder trial or investigation. Consequently, he chose to leave London, Ontario on July 5, 1979. He then made his way to the Windy City. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, Things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. And we are back. So, by August 22nd, 1879, Cream had already set up shop on the west side of Chicago with a brand new medical office. He was now light on cash, but he had a strategy. To attract patients, he positioned himself as a specialist in women's reproductive health, seemingly indicating his readiness to provide assistance with terminating unwanted pregnancies. He understood the desperation of pregnant women at the time and exploited it. One morning, a man went into Chicago's Westlake Street Police Station to report a foul odor in his apartment building, as well as having witnessed a neighbor flee the building that morning. When police arrived on scene, they found a woman lying on a blood-soaked bed. Her arms were neatly folded across her chest, but her face and neck were severely bloated and turning black from decomposition. Neighbors told police that the woman must have been the one who moved into the unit about 10 days earlier, with a woman named Hattie Mack. Hattie was well known in the area as a midwife and a nurse, and neighbors reported seeing a doctor visit the apartment a handful of times in the previous days. The doctor even handed one of the neighbors one of his business cards, brandished with his name, Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. Obviously, police wanted to speak with Dr. Cream to determine what he had been doing at the residence and they also wanted to find the missing woman who had fled the scene earlier that day, Hattie Mack. They located Cream at a drugstore just a few blocks away, where he was also living in a rented room, which was at the back of the store. An examination of Cream's office revealed two notes. One provided the identity of the deceased woman as Mary Ann Matilda Faulkner, originally hailing from Ottawa, Canada. The other note, written in pencil, was penned by the missing woman, Hattie Mack, and it read as follows. Dr. Cream, I'll not be home tonight. I've tried to see you. I got the key. I can't take the children home till she is moved. I not told anyone. Please let me see you as quick as you can. I am under a great strain. I am at my sister's. H.M. P.S. The window is up. Be careful of the woman upstairs. When Cream was questioned, he admitted that Faulkner had been a patient of his and she came into his medical practice to be treated for dysentery. But Cream changed his story and said she had been suffering from what he referred to as ulceration of the womb. The police did catch up to Hattie Mack as well, who was indeed at her sister's residence, as stated in the letter she wrote intended for Dr. Cream. Hattie had had a different story. 
She accused Cream of giving Faulkner an abortion, and she had been the one to care for Marianne Faulkner, who was struggling after the operation. When police confronted Cream with the story that Hattie Mack had given to police, he was forced to once again change his story. This time, he insisted it had been Hattie who performed the abortion on Faulkner, and after the procedure had been botched, he had been called to help. He claimed she was suffering from infection and that it was too late for him to help her. Marianne Faulkner was just 29 years old when she died and had been working as a maid. To get a sense of her character, she would send a portion of her pay each week to her mother back in Canada who was widowed and raising Mary's siblings as a single mother. A coroner's jury consisting of six men swiftly reached a verdict in less than 30 minutes. They concluded that Faulkner's death was the result of an infection which had arisen due to an abortion that was carried out by Dr. Thomas Neil Cream and Miss Hattie Mack. Because Faulkner's demise occurred during the abortion procedure, it was deemed a capital offense. As a result, both Hattie and Cream were jailed awaiting a grand jury's indictment. During this time, the press in Chicago was printing headlines such as a brutal case of malpractice and the doctor's record, a bad one. So, on November 15, 1880, Cream appeared in court dressed smartly in a business suit and white tie. He told the court his version of events, that he had been called to give Faulkner an examination after an abortion had already been performed, and he asserted that he had done everything he could to save her life. He pointed the finger at Hattie Mack and alluded to the fact that she had been attempting to set him up. During the trial, the prosecutor utilized his cross-examination to explore Cream's troubled history. Cream refuted the notion that he had fled London, Ontario due to the discovery of a deceased woman near his office. He stated with a deliberate choice of words that he had never been arrested for any crime anywhere in the world up until this point. He also claimed that he had never conducted an abortion in his entire life, which, as we know, is a lie, as he had performed an abortion on his wife, Flora Brooks, before deserting her back in 1876. However, the court was unfortunately unaware of this. The jury took less than an hour to reach their unanimous decision, not guilty. Dr. Cream openly displayed elation, promptly standing up and warmly greeting his attorneys, and all of the jurors with handshakes. The charges against Hattie Mack were also dismissed, leading to both suspects in Faulkner's murder, avoiding any legal consequences. Cream would routinely visit his lawyer's office after the court case had been resolved. The lawyer described Cream as a most charming talker and recalled their conversations about sex workers, where Cream would declare that they, sex workers, were a menace to society and that he had a desire to rid the earth of these unfortunate beings. Ellen Stack was a 25-year-old woman who was from Ireland. She was working in Chicago as a maid for a man named Charles Bowler, who was a clothing salesman. Ellen had been feeling under the weather, and so on an evening in December of 1880, she went to visit a doctor where she was vaccinated against smallpox and given two prescriptions. On her way home, she had these prescriptions filled at a drugstore on West Madison Street. Before she went to bed that night, she took her medication. At roughly 1 a.m., Charles Bowler was awoken in his room by the sound of groans coming from Ellen's room. He found her tossing about in her bed when he went to check on her. Charles described the scene as watching her suffer from violent convulsions, which seemed to cause her a great deal of pain. 
He immediately called for a doctor, but by the time he arrived, Ellen was dead. As it would turn out, Ellen had visited Dr. Cream that day, and when he was visited by reporters, Cream said the girl had every symptom of early stages of smallpox. These symptoms included fever, aches, vomiting, skin rash, and sores. He confirmed to the press that he had vaccinated her and written two prescriptions. Cream even dared to say, strange that the girl should have died within a few hours of the visit. He also assured the journalist that the medications he provided Ellen would not cause convulsions or anything of the sort. Cream suggested that Ellen's stack had been poisoned, but even better, he also pointed the finger at a man who worked at a drugstore just two doors down from Cream's practice where Ellen had filled her prescription. His name was Frank Pyatt. Despite the allegations being tossed around, no inquest was held and Ellen Stack was buried in the Cavalry Catholic Cemetery. The situation did not end there, though. Cream seemed to have a darker motive for tossing Frank Pyatt's name into the mix. By doing so, he created a red herring and was able to cover his own tracks. On March 13, 1881, Frank Pyatt received a letter from Dr. Thomas Neal Cream. It read the following. I understand you are annoyed at my making a statement in regard to Ellen Stack's death. No offense was intended. I expect you will be arrested and held for Ellen Stack's death. She was poisoned, and there is no doubt of it. The fact has been proved by experiment. I received this information this morning, and to show my friendly disposition towards you, I have written to give you the benefit of the information I have received so that you can take any prudent steps you would think to do in the matter. For God's sake, keep quiet and trust no one. My bitter experience taught me to be suspicious of everyone I meet. I'm sorry for your sake that things have turned out as they have. But Cream wasn't done yet. He sent a follow-up on March 24th in which he claimed a lawyer who was investigating Ellen's death had spoken to him. He wrote, They are preparing to prosecute you, and their case is a clear one against you. He added that they had a bottle that had been given to Ellen Stack with Pyatt's name on it, and it contains poison, beyond any doubt. After Pyatt received these letters, he was absolutely convinced that Cream was attempting to frame him for a murder that Cream had actually committed. But the pattern of young pregnant women dying under suspicious circumstances in Chicago wasn't over. On April 9, 1881, a woman in her early 20s arrived at the front desk of the Sheldon House Hotel on West Madison Street. It was late, around 9 p.m. on a Saturday. She told staff that she needed a room for the night, but declined to provide her name. She was given a key to room 43 and asked for a glass and a tablespoon to be delivered to her room as well. Not even an hour later, a man named Samuel Sharp, who worked at the hotel, heard a woman screaming and found her in the hallway writhing on the floor, seemingly in pain. Staff carried the woman to her room, laid her on the bed, and called for a doctor. Two doctors arrived on the scene and immediately became suspicious of the convulsions the woman was suffering from. They had seen it before. Strychnine poisoning. They asked her if she had taken something, to which she weakly responded, Yes. And minutes later, she died. Her name was Sarah Alice Montgomery, and she had worked as a waitress at a nearby medical building. She was described by coworkers as very intelligent, full of life and spirit, and a general favorite at the place. When police began to investigate the death of Sarah, 
They found a bottle of medicine in her room which contained a dark liquid, as well as a prescription for ergot, which at the time was used to induce labor or cause an abortion. It was also possible for ergot to be lethal in large doses, but the bottle found in her room had been nearly full. Earlier that day, Sarah had left work at around 4 p.m., and then she went to H.F. Crafts Pharmacy on West Madison, where she presented a prescription for ergot diluted in water. The pharmacist was hesitant to fill the prescription as it was actually a copy and not the original version. But Sarah explained that the doctor who had originally provided the prescription to a friend of hers told her it was okay for her to write out a duplicate. And so the prescription was filled. Sarah's autopsy revealed she was three months pregnant. And even more shocking, when the medical examiner took her stomach contents and fed it to a cat, the cat died within 20 minutes. Knowing something was amiss, the bottle of medicine found in Sarah's room was put through more rigorous testing, and it confirmed that strychnine was present. This heavily suggested that Sarah Alice Montgomery had been murdered, either by accident or on purpose. Strychnine is a highly toxic alkaloid compound that is naturally found in certain plants. It is a potent neurotoxin that affects the central nervous system, leading to severe muscle spasms, convulsions, and ultimately death if ingested in sufficient quantities. Historically, strychnine was used as a pesticide and in small doses as a stimulant, but due to its extreme toxicity, it is no longer used for such purposes. The pharmacist was adamant that he had not made the fatal error of adding strychnine to the prescription when filling it. The coroner mysteriously received letters from an unknown sender after Sarah Montgomery's death. They were assumed to be in Sarah's writing, and the letters accused a Dr. Fraser of consenting to perform an abortion. The doctor, who was summoned to an inquest, completely denied this and stated that he had never even met the victim. It seems obvious to us that police should have had a prime suspect right away. Dr. Cream had been suspected of another homicide with the exact same MO just months prior. Cream's office was also just two blocks away from the hotel where Sarah had died, and it was on the walking route she would have taken after leaving the drugstore. Unfortunately, law enforcement at the time struggled to put two and two together, and sadly, Sarah Alice Montgomery's murder was never solved. In June of 1881, a man named Joseph Martin received a letter in the mail. Joseph, who was 33 years old and worked in the fur trade, lived with his wife and two daughters. The letter read as follows. I am obliged to inform your neighbors and employers that you, your wife, and your children are suffering from a loathsome disease called syphilis in order that they may protect themselves. The letter was signed by Dr. Cream. Joseph was outraged by the allegations in the letter, and by the end of the day, Dr. Cream was detained by the U.S. Marshals and charged with the federal offense of using the Postal Service to distribute indecent, lewd, and obscene material. This charge came with the possibility of a fine up to $5,000, which is the equivalent to $120,000 in today's currency, and 10 years in jail if convicted. Now, when Cream was asked why he had been sending these letters to Joseph Martin, he said that Martin owed him 20 bucks for a medical treatment and was using blackmail as an incentive to pay. Meanwhile, Martin was adamant that he had already paid Cream in full. Furthermore, Cream was a no-show at the following hearing scheduled for June 27, 1881, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. 
Meanwhile, also in June of 1881, Daniel Stott arrived at the Northwestern Railroad's depot in Grand Prairie, Illinois. Daniel was the station master and he suffered from epilepsy. His wife, Julia Stott, had gone to the doctor in Chicago earlier that day to get Daniel's medication to keep his symptoms under control. Using a pocket knife, Daniel opened his new bottle of medication that had a Buck and Rainer label on it. He swallowed a tablespoon of the liquid medicine and three capsules of another. Now Daniel was surprised by the bitter aftertaste the medication left in his mouth. And just 15 minutes later, Daniel was in bed and began to scream in pain while holding onto his stomach. Julia ran in to see what was going on and found her husband in a disturbing way. His upper lip had been drawn back and his eyes were half out of his head. Daniel told her, My God, I'm dying. And within minutes, Daniel Stott was gone. Just two days later, on June 14, 1881, Daniel Stott was buried. But his remains, and the concealed truth they held, would soon resurface. On June 16, 1881, two days after Daniel Stott had been laid to rest, the coroner received a bizarre telegram. Want you to have post-mortem examination on body of Dan Stott, Garden Prairie. Have stomach analyzed for foul play. The coroner was miffed. He knew that Daniel was an older man, 61 years old, and suffered from epilepsy. He saw no reason for further investigation into his death. The telegrams received were signed by Dr. Crame, that's C-R-A-M-E, and the other Dr. Cram, C-R-A-M. The coroner had no clue as to how this doctor had found out about Daniel Stott's death or why he seemed convinced that Daniel hadn't died of natural causes. But then he received a letter from Chicago the same day. It essentially repeated what the telegram had said, but this time the sender added that they suspected Daniel had died of strychnine poisoning and added, but that is for you to say after you have held the inquest. The state's attorney, Reuben Kuhn, received the very same message in matching handwriting, and this time the letters revealed the identity of the person making the allegations, Thomas N. Cream. When they wrote Cream back stating that no one here is guilty, Cream reacted with frustration. Quote, The prescription was all right. I have forgotten more medicine than most of the physicians of Illinois know. Cream threatened to tip off the press if the coroner refused to exhume the remains. Quote, The weather is warmer, decomposition proceeds rapidly, and if you do not get to work immediately, your examination will not amount to anything. But Cream had more to share. In another message, he explained how he had learned about Daniel Stott's death. According to him, a clairvoyant woman had visited his workplace. And to test her abilities, he inquired about some of his own patients. When he mentioned the name Stott, she supposedly informed him that he had passed away and that poison had been involved. Cream also ordered the coroner to test his theory by giving some of the medications Stott had taken to a dog, and the coroner obliged. Of course, the dog died 25 minutes after the medication had been administered, and this was enough to convince the coroner to exhume Daniel's remains. When Daniel's stomach was observed with more detail, strychnine was detected, and in an amount sufficient several times over to produce death. There was now little doubt that Daniel Stott had not died of natural causes, and the coroner as well as the state's attorney had no doubt when it came to who was responsible. 
Daniel had been a patient of Dr. Cream's, and when Julia Stott was questioned about the day she went to his office to get the medication for her husband, she told law enforcement that she had walked from his office to the druggist, Buck and Rayner, which was, of course, on the label. She then returned to Cream's practice and admitted that she left the medicine unattended during her time in Cream's office. An inquest into Daniel Stott's death was held, but Thomas Neal Cream was a no-show. Even so, the juries reached their decision. The evidence implicated one Thomas N. Cream as the unlawful slayer of the deceased. However, Cream had fled. He was already a wanted man for sending obscene letters via the Postal Service and had skipped bail more than two weeks earlier. A headline in the Belvedere Standard declared, Dr. Cream is now the man badly wanted. It was a July evening in Windsor, Ontario in 1881 when Sheriff Albert Ames and William Baines, who at the time was the chief of police in Windsor, made their way to the Gautier Hotel. They waited until the wee hours of the morning when the hotel guests would be asleep to make their move. They knocked on a door of a room where a guest was going by the name of Dr. Donald Ross. When the door opened, Thomas Neal Cream was standing on the other side. The officers presented a warrant for his arrest and told them that he was being charged with the murder of Daniel Stott. Sheriff Ames recalled Cream challenging them and proclaiming his innocence, all while he turned pale and trembled in their grasp. The following day, July 28, 1881, Cream was arraigned before a magistrate in Windsor. He denied having any involvement in the murder of Mr. Stott and explained that the only reason he had fled Chicago was to escape the notoriety he was gaining. The press was having a field day with this case. They dug up the case of Catherine Gardner, who was found in an outhouse just steps away from Dr. Thomas Neal Cream's office in London, Ontario. And before long, Sheriff Ames made the announcement that Dr. Cream was also responsible for the death of Sarah Alice Montgomery, the woman who was found in the hotel room. This resulted in headlines such as, The doctor will have a handful of murders to answer for, or crooked cream, or bad cream, such a cow-ardly man, and finally, ought to be cremated. Before long, Cream found himself on trial for murder for the second time in under a year's time. On September 19, 1881, he appeared in court to answer for the murder of Daniel Stott. Hundreds of spectators had gathered to witness what had become quite the spectacle. The prosecution's key witness was Julia Stott, Daniel's wife, even though she herself was also in jail as she was the suspected accomplice in his murder. Julia and Cream would have separate trials, and Julia had agreed to testify against him. When Julia took the stand, the women in the courtroom were asked to leave as the topics about to be discussed were deemed as too delicate for the women present. Julia's testimony was damning. She admitted that Cream had ordered her to have the medication filled at Buck and Rayner and had accompanied her to the store himself. Julia also said that she had indeed witnessed Dr. Cream handling the medication and in her words, she saw him tampering with it, though she did not see him put anything into it. Her testimony also confirmed the widely believed suspicions that Cream had tried to manipulate her into suing the pharmacy. Most shocking of all, Julia told the court that she and Cream had been lovers. When it was Cream's turn to take the stand in his own defense, 
He would say that he refused Julia's request to provide her with strychnine, but she somehow managed to get a hold of it anyway. He denied everything that Julia had said, including their relationship ever being sexual in nature and having anything to do with the murder of her husband, Daniel. When asked why Cream had demanded Daniel's death to be looked into, he replied that he was convinced that Julia had poisoned him. It took the prosecution and the defense seven hours to present their closing arguments, and then the jury was off to deliberate. When they returned with their verdict, all eyes were on Thomas Neal Cream. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. The jury was also tasked with deciding upon the punishment the defendant would receive, and in Cream's case, only three of the jurors wanted to send him to the gallows. It was decided by the majority that he would be sentenced to life in prison, with one day out of the year spent in solitary confinement. Cream didn't react to the jury's decision and was led out of the courtroom to begin serving his sentence at the notorious Illinois State Penitentiary, otherwise known as Juliet. If you're wondering what happened to Julia Stott, she spent six months in jail awaiting a trial that would never happen. The prosecutors agreed to release her in February of 1882. We're going to end part one here, but believe us when we say there is much more to the story of the murderous Dr. Cream. Thanks for listening to this episode of True North True Crime. Join us for part two, which should be in your feed first thing tomorrow morning. And stay spooky, everyone.